We are not going to finish the entire chapter of Zechariah 6. We will get through the final vision, the vision of the four chariots. As I was going through this, people often have the questions when we look at this world and we see all the evil, nasty things that are going on. Where is God and why does He allow all these things to happen? As we look at Zechariah chapter 6, I think we might have a clue that will help us understand this. Now last week, last time we were together, we looked at the scroll and the woman. And we saw that there is an urgency for us to see the wickedness as something evil and not something to be toyed with. We need to let the law of God and the will of God identify what is sin and what is evil and make sure that we take that and bring it into captivity or cage it. It's very easy for the world system to attach itself to us. And what the world identifies as evil, I'm sorry, what the word identifies as evil, we justify as okay. We should not care what the world identifies as evil or what the world identifies as good. All we should care about is what the Word of God does and knows that's how we should view evil in this world. Tolerance becomes acceptance and that can even lead to compliance. Now this week we're going to take a look at the culmination of all these visions and it should increase our need to separate from evil. So this is the The thing we want to see, this is not so much eight independent visions. These really kind of run together. And they have a ultimate goal. And we want to take a look at what is the ultimate goal of these visions. Let's not lose sight of the purpose of each of these visions and and miss the overall point. Where is he going to? Because there is a starting point and there is an ending point with these visions. And so we want to make sure we, we do that. So I spent a good bit of time on Monday. Just kind of going over all eight visions so I could see the progression and hopefully put it into a simple way for us to see this. Let's begin reading here. In verse 1, Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, and with the second chariot, black horses, and with the third chariot, white horses, and with the fourth chariot, dappled horses, Strong steeds. The two mountains are mountains of bronze. And the, uh, since the original text says two mountains, some have tended to view these two mountains as Mount, the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Zion. But the mountains of bronze associates these mountains with strength and with judgment. Now bronze, bronze is a metal that can withstand heat. And fire, so it often represents judgment. And in the building of the temple, the bronze is put in the places where judgment is being depicted and gold where sin has been removed. Now the temple has two very large pillars of bronze at the front. In fact, when it adds up all the bronze and the bronze pillars and the other bronze items in the beginning area of the temple, it actually says it's a weight that couldn't be measured. There's an immeasurable amount of weight. Now, the question would be, Do these chariots that are coming into view, are they coming through mountains that are on the earth? Or are they coming through mountains that are in heaven? John's vision takes place in heaven. This one, it says that they come through two mountains, but we don't know. They're two mountains of bronze. Now, here's something that is somewhat interesting. When Moses comes and he has the vision of the temple and what he is supposed to build, he brings that and he and God says, make sure that you build it exactly as you see it. It is a possibility that what he saw in heaven in the beginning, and this is just a there's I have absolutely nothing to base this on. I saw it suggested. It's a worthwhile suggestion that it's possible that the temple in heaven does, is not, does not begin with two bronze pillars, but begins with two bronze mountains. And to mimic that, they made these enormous bronze pillars. I could see some validity to that. It's going to be really tough for them to make two bronze mountains. If that is what is the case in heaven, and we have two bronze mountains, it could be that these chariots are coming through the bronze mountains in heaven. And that's important to note because in the first time we saw these four colors of horses show up, 
They showed up in Zechariah chapter 1 in the first vision. There were no chariots. They were just horses. But the colors are the same. And they just went around observing. Now they're coming and they're going to execute judgment. So the difference is before they were just horses, they were observing. Now they have chariots. So they are prepared for war. So before they were for observation, now it's for judgment. Now the four colors. Some commentators want to identify these four chariots with Daniel's four empires. If you ever do some reading on this, you'll find that there are some places that that try and do that. Uh, I don't see any way that you can identify them. They were in the previous visions. We saw that they were the horns and the craftsmen were sent out against them. And they just don't seem to have the same purpose that these horsemen do. But the colors do mimic something else in the Word of God, and that is the colors of the horses of Revelation. Because of that, there are people who will go out and teach that these horses, these horsemen and these chariots are the same thing as the horses in Revelation. I would really differ with that. I don't see that there's any way about it. We'll, we'll uncover that as we go along. But that's where you have to be careful when you listen to some people because they hang on to a couple of similar points and then they say, well, since these are similar, then they must be the same. Uh, no. God has some things that He creates and the devil goes out and He tries to mimic them. And He gets to be similar, but they're not the same. And so we have to understand the, the differences between that. Now, coming between the bronze mountains, the horses of Revelation don't come between bronze mountains. They are not sent as an execution of judgment. This is something that the uh, the forces of evil muster to, uh, to get their forces going. This is something that God is sending and these are called messengers of God. Now there is some thought and I, I can't deny this that they may be these four horsemen these the people, the horses on the the horsemen on the horses that are carrying the chariots they may be connected with the angelic messengers of Revelation chapter 7. Let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 7 verse 1 through 3. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. And the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. It is very possible that there could be a direct correlation between these four angels and the four horsemen that we see in Zechariah's vision. Because God is commissioning both of them for a certain purpose. So just keep that in mind as we go. Let's go on with verse 4 here in Zechariah. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. Four spirits of heaven who go out from their station. There's a place where they operate from. That seems a little bit similar to Revelation chapter 7. So there are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. So this is before God. They seem to have a purpose with Him. The one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them. And the dappled are going towards the south country. Then the strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And He said, Go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And He called to me and He spoke to me saying, See, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Now these may not be the same as in Revelation 6, 1 through 8. But the colors are either the same or very similar. So we do want to take a look at Revelations to get an understanding of the color. The four horsemen of Revelation are not the four horsemen of Zechariah. But the colors are similar. And so we can learn something about the colors from what goes on in Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. 
Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of its one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Well, I jumped ahead to verse 3. We didn't need that one just yet. But the white here, it, the white horseman, or the white horse, actually, is the first one in this list. In Zechariah, it's the third. But they're both white. When you look at the Septuagint, and you compare how the Septuagint translated the colors of Zechariah compared to how they are in the book of Revelation, the red, the white, and the black are the same. The fourth color is the one that can be possibly different. So, the white here is the first one. Now, if you've been through a revelation when we've been here, or maybe you've even heard some other people who do it, this particular horseman goes out with a bow. Now, what should go along with a bow? Arrows. But this man has no arrows. He only has a bow. So, it would seem that on this first one, this rider is going to go out. The bow represents military strength, conquest. But he's going to go out without arrows, so it would seem that there's a conquest without actually fighting, without actually war. And that he is able to come into some kind of power. It says here, He who sat on had a bow, and a crown was given to him. The word there for crown is not the crown that is given to one who rules. It is given to one who is the victor. It is the Stephanos crown. And so he was a victor of something. Perhaps he was the victor of public opinion. Perhaps he was the victor of uh, election or a race or something along those lines. But he, it is not a crown, a, uh, a diadem, a crown of ruling. So that is important to note. Whenever you see crown in the Bible, you want to find out what type of crown is it. It will tell you some things that the English word crown will not. So this is the white horse. We've talked about him before. This is not someone of God. This is the Antichrist. He's going to go out. He is going to pretend to be the the Christ. He's going to pretend to be good. He's going to go out. He's probably going to make covenants. He's probably going to make promises. He may have some ability to solve some world problems. And because of his ability to solve these world problems that have complexed people, uh, they're going to say, oh, wow, look at this. Let's give him some... Um, some rule, and he's going to have uh, the ability to rule over this area. Again, Antichrist does not rule worldwide. He only rules in the kingdom of the north as it was depicted in the book of Daniel. That's where he will he will go. So that's the first one. He is going out to conquer. This uh, color white here would represent for us power and victory. Power and victory. <clears throat> So let's go on. Verse 3 says, And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there should be given to him a great sword. So the second color red is on the second, it's on the second horse here in Revelation, but it is the first horse in Zechariah. This is bloodshed through war and violence and the removal of peace. Peace is removed. Violence comes in. It can be war. It can just be violence. We have certainly seen in our day and age that you can remove peace, have a lot of violence, and there's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of uh, destruction. Things like that can come in. You don't just need all-out war for that. And this could represent both things in the area of war. We see war going around the world today. We see destruction. We see people that are dying from these things. This is what's going on there. Now, it's in the book of Revelation that the seals unleash this. They unleash it in a greater degree. These things are still going on. The spirit of Antichrist is here, present now. It has been. has not ever left. It's just going to manifest itself in a greater degree during the tribulation period. And it's going to settle on one particular person. So too with this. War, 
and the killing through violence, the removal of peace, all this is going to happen at the second seal and in an intensified way. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. Now black here is the third horse in Revelation, and it is the second in Zechariah. This is financial and economic collapse resulting in food shortages or famine. That's what we see in this particular area here. And understanding, since this is what they mean, the colors mean in the book of Revelation, it's probably our best barometer to understand what they mean in the book of Zechariah. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse, in the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, pale here is a different name than what we have in the uh, book of Zechariah, and even in the Septuagint, the wording there is different. Here it is, death, and Hades follows behind him. And power was given over him a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So more death is going to come in multiple ways. Some have uh, said that this more accurately is depicted as instead of pale, but a more of a sickly pale green color. And it's real hard to figure out what Zachariah's word means for the fourth color. Uh, some have seen it to be something speckled spotted uh, it does seem like it is probably different but maybe something along the same lines as what this one is but again this is directly calling it death and God says death is the last enemy to be put underfoot so I don't see that God would be using death or death would be one of the ones sent out by God so the purpose that goes on with the fourth uh, rider could be similar to what the purpose is that God has for, for this one, but just the, uh, the means will be different. Now, the use of chariots here is likely because they were fast. In that day, chariots represented uh, power and the devastation they could put on an enemy. They were the, they were the power things. How many chariots do you have? That was a, the big thing. How many horse, horses do you have? How many chariots do you have? This is what they would look at. If, but it represented speed. If you wanted to say something was fast, you'd put it in a chariot. That's how they would, they would do it. So that's why the, this is here. Do not get the idea that chariots are heavenly weapons of war. They are not. There's nothing holy, majestic about chariots. They, uh, this is just something that we're, we're doing. So chariots are not heavenly vehicles of war. They are symbolic. If this vision was given today... Perhaps they would be using tanks or jets or something along those lines, to, depending upon what you wanted to to depict. Really, if you wanted if you wanted to put it in the in the terms, and it doesn't seem like you're comparing apples to apples here in this one, but if you wanted to take what a chariot was to the people in the Old Testament, the closest thing I can think of to compare it to is an aircraft carrier. That's how devastating they were. If you had multiple, then they would have to have thousands, of course, to equivalate what a, what that was. But we look at nations, we compare how many uh, aircraft carriers you have, because when you have an aircraft carrier, there's also an entire navy that goes along with it. So many destroyers, so many, um, uh, all the, I can't think of all the different parts that go there, but submarines will go along with it. All of that goes with the uh, uh, navy. They're numbered. They all have a number, and so this, this number of this navy is over here, but they all surround the carry. The carry has a support group. And so these are the things that you have that are going out there. And so we have, uh, what is it, seven, Daryl? we got seven? Seven right now. And uh, I think two of them are the new class. we got the Ford, and is the other one released, or is it not yet released yet? Oh, no, these are above Nimitz. 
Yeah, Ford is above the, the Ford class is above Nimitz. Yep, um, Nimitz is an older one. I I know Ford was the the Ford one was the first one, and there's a second one. I cannot think of what it is. Uh, the name of that second one. That, I don't know if they've gone to a third one or not. Maybe it's Reagan. I mean, they name after presidents a lot of time. I I, I know an enterprise, a new enterprise is being built. The Nimitz is a Nimitz class, though, right? Yep. Oh, the fork. I got you. Okay. I'm pretty sure we have two of the four. It's, it's an amazing class of aircraft carrier when you see some of the things that are going on with that. Um, but these these things represent power. So this is what they represent to them. When you see chariots mentioned, these are power. And these are uh, with angels associated with them. This They represent an immense amount of power, far more than just represented in the chariots with uh, the people had in those days. But just get that understanding of what's there. So it's not that we're going to necessarily see chariots. Uh, maybe we do. But that's what was symbolic for them as far as power is concerned. Now both the first and the last visions mention some patrolling horses doing God's work. That's in Zechariah 1 and verse 10 and 6 and verse 7. In the first vision, the horses go out as scouts. In the second vision, they go out pulling war chariots. In the first vision, the horses patrol the earth only to find the nations resting in their rebellion. In the second vision, the horses patrol the earth to put an end to the nation's rebellion. Both the beginning and the finishing of these works are marked by the activity of these horses. Which kind of gives you the idea why in Revelation, when Satan goes out and sends his guys, he sends them on horses. He's trying to mimic what God is doing. Let's take a look at the progression here of these visions. The first vision of the horses is God's unrest in the state of the world. And I wanted to read one of the verses from Zechariah chapter 1. Remind you about this. Verse 14. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. So God says, I was a little bit angry with Israel. Now, you remember the prophecies? God said that was a little bit angry. <laughs> Think about that. And they came and they helped out with that, but they had evil intent. They did what I wanted, but they did it with evil intent, so they went overboard, and now they're not picking up on what my heart is here, and they're at rest, and I am not. God expects us to know when He is not at rest. He expects us to know He wants something done that's not being done. We're His kids. If He expects that of the world, well, He's going to expect that of us too. So we need to make sure that we understand what He wants to do. So the writers here in the beginning, they were observers. They see the world is at rest while God's people are displaced. They do not know. They do not honor God's will. So that was the first vision that came. Then the horns came, the nations that came against God's people and what God sends against these, these enemies. And these were the craftsmen. They were the agents that God sent against them. So we have the nations at rest and then he goes over the horns. These are the ones that came and they, they uh, uh, attacked Israel. Because I was angry with them. And then the craftsmen came and they took out the, the horns. Then we had the measuring line. That God is measuring, preparing to expand and bless His people. We're gonna, you, you see this temple is this big, but look, I'm looking at something bigger. We're getting ready to expand. Don't just see this, I'm looking down the road. Things are gonna expand. Things are gonna be blessed. Measuring occurs to warrant judgment or to prepare for expansion. In this case, it was to prepare for expansion. And then we have the lampstand and the olive trees. There are actually two visions. I put them in one line here. But to operate in the vision and purpose of God will take spiritual strength. And here it's represented with golden oil. We cannot do it by our own might and power, but by His Spirit, the Word of God said. God has provided it through these anointed branches that feed the bowl, and the bowl went out and fed the lamps. To do this, we have to stop allowing our faith to be moved by natural sources, what we see, what we feel, and what we hear and only be moved by what the Word of the Spirit says. All of these first visions 
were God working on behalf of Israel to bring them back to the place where they were, to come against the enemies that set themselves against God and to bring Israel back into that place that God wanted them. And then we go on and we have we start with the scroll in the sky. In this particular vision, it is it is a public invisible identification of and a declaration against sin. This is for all the world to see. Then we have the woman in the basket. So the scroll in the sky identified the evil. The woman in the basket, this is evil. We have captivated her. We put her in the basket. We put the lid over top and we sent it over to Babylon for a place that was made for for her to be there in Babylon. So the scroll pointed out sin and the woman represented the evil. She was laid to rest on a place that was prepared. They made some kind of a temple and put it there. Now this could also serve as a warning to the Jews that were still in Babylon who had not come up on the first or the second or the third call or any other call that had gone on. They still stayed there in Babylon. I'm comfortable here. I like it here. God is sending this message. I want you to know. Evil has been captured and has been taken out of the land of Israel and it has been sent over there to Babylon. When you see what happens in the correlation of the whole thing it should scare anybody who was still in Babylon to stay there. So right now, evil has been captured and has been sent over. In Zechariah 5 and verse 10, So I said to the angel who talked with me, Why are they carrying the basket? He said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. And then we lead into the vision of the four chariots. And in this one... The original horsemen come back in, but this time they have war chariots attached. They're coming through two mountains of bronze, which means they're coming for judgment. They have been sent out. They have been empowered. And they're coming out to judge. And he says, of these, two are going to the north country. First the one in black, and then the one in white. Where's the north country? Babylon. We're coming. Evil has been sent. It's been carried over there. The ones that took it there, they prepared a place for it and they think they're in good shape. Uh Uh-uh. Here it comes. And then one was dispatched to the south country. And there's some fun with the wording and all the rest of it. So the world is at rest and God is angry at them. He sent his craftsmen against those who rose up against Israel. God measured his temple, preparing for expansion. The task ahead is large, but God supplies the power. Evil will be dealt with and sent to a welcoming place, and then God will send a mighty force of judgment against that place, and He will be at peace when evil is destroyed. Now, with all that in mind here, let me go on back, and let's read the the um, text here again. Verse, let's pick up verse 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, and white are going after them. So the one with the black horses, these are the ones that are going to go out. Economic, financial ruin, followed by shortages, Food shortages, starvation, this is, this is what's going first. We know from the book of Revelation that the system of Babylon is a huge economic capital, financial capital, and the, more, the world will mourn when Babylon in the book of Revelation falls, when Babylon the economic capital, when Babylon the religious center falls, they don't care. But when the economics part of it falls, they do. So the black horses are going first, And then the white are going after them. Now this is God's way of doing things. In the book of Revelation, the white goes first. God does not go out to declare victory until sin is judged and dealt with. So he's going to take the the place where the evil has been put and he's sending the black horses out there first. You guys go and we're going to bring devastation to that area and judgment will come and then I come in with the victory. The way the enemy does it, I'm going to come in and declare victory. Even though, really, no victory has been had because I have no arrows. I'm just going to declare victory. It's all going to be a fake victory. 
It's all going to be made on, on pretense and promises. And then halfway through, he's going to break them anyway. So that's part of the difference that is there. But the white are going after them, and the dappled are going towards the south country. Now, in the time of Israel, the two enemies that they have come from the north. Assyria comes from the north. Babylon comes from the north. And then even the, um, uh, the Persians come from the north. And eventually they are a, a bit of an enemy. Rome even comes from the north. Greece comes from the north. All these kings come from the north area. But one comes from the south, which is Egypt. Egypt is the only one that comes from the south. So the, the, the white horse, or whatever the... Uh, uh, that one was the, in here was the white horse that was called... Let me read them back over here. The one with the black horses is going to the north country and the white was going up to the... to the There, the dappled are going toward the south country. So this is the, the odd one. We can't really correlate the same name here with the pale horse in Revelation. Uh, I imagine that something similar in purpose is going on there, but again, when you see the actual prophecy unfold, maybe we'll, we'll know it. When it says here in verse 7, because I went, as we looked over this verse, we have the direction of the, of the black horses, which is north. We have the direction of the white horses, which is north. We have the direction of the dappled horses, which is, where are the red ones going? Isn't it kind of interesting how the red ones are missing? How can the red ones not? Now, originally, the angel of the Lord, in the, in the first chapter, the angel of the Lord was on the red horses. And that could have some kind of a, a play in it. But there is some notes on the Hebrew text that in verse 7, when it says the strong steeds, that the word there is very similar to the word red. In fact, the word red it can actually be translated in some way strong because it's considered a strong color. I'm just reading from, or telling you what the, I learned from the people who wrote this on the on there. So it could be that verse 7 is actually saying that the red ones went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the whole earth. That the red ones are going throughout the whole earth. The black and white ones are going north and the dappled are going south. That's a possibility. Can't tell you exactly for sure. But that's a that's a possibility. Go to, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth and he called to me and spoke to me saying, See those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. So God sent the evil up into Babylon and then the black horses went out there and they, they brought judgment upon that and God says when he saw the judgment come upon them, I'm at rest now. And then the white victorious one comes on in after that. But he was at rest. So, that brings us to our, our next question here. And that is, is this vision past or future? Now, I'm saying past or future for us. It was future for them. But was it future near future or future distant future? So, for us, is it past like it has already been fulfilled? Or is it going into the tribulation period and going to be fulfilled then? There are many prophecies in the Old Testament that have a current day meaning as well as a future one. If we look at a possible current day meaning of this particular vision, the city of Babylon is where the evil was sent in the previous vision. So we know that Babylon is where this is taken. Now, in the fifth year of Darius... This is three years after the prophet saw these visions. It was around the second year of Darius that he saw these visions. All these visions came to him then. In the fifth year of Darius, three years after this, Babylon, which had been conquered by Cyrus, a Persian, rebelled against Darius. You remember I told you we were talking about Darius in his first couple of years, how much rebellion he had and how much distrust he had and how he had to get all that stuff brought up. Well, apparently Babylon was one of the cities that rebelled against him. And they rebelled. And so, though Cyrus had conquered the city and brought them under the Persian control, they rebelled. And so then Darius came in as he was going around and conquering all these places that tried to rebel against him. He came against Babylon and he fought against them. And apparently he brought great devastation to the city of Babylon. Many people died. There was much destruction that was done when he came through and he did it. So the city was devastated with destruction and death. 
which would be an interpretation of what Zechariah was predicting. And so any of the Israelites who still stayed in the area of Babylon because they were comfortable, because they had businesses, because they had belongings, because they had family, because whatever the reason was, they said, no, we don't want to go. And they stayed. They had this final warning. The judgment's coming. The black horses are coming up to you. And they stayed. They died. Some, some of them died. Don't know how many of them. We're not giving any numbers and all that. As far as the future day is concerned, in the tribulation, Babylon once again becomes the, or at least a big focus. And evil will once again make its habitation there. That is pretty clear from the book of Revelation. That evil will make its habitation there. Destruction and devastation will find it and the world will mourn. Before the tribulation time ends, Babylon will be destroyed. That will come to an end. Now, as far as getting to how do we apply all this stuff to our own lives, because really, if I can't figure out how to apply this to my life, why in the world am I bother studying all this stuff? We all, we all look at this world and the evil things that are going on. And a lot of people wonder, where is God and why does He allow all these things to happen? Right? You see, the evil things that are happening, I've had countless conversations. It seems like hardly a week goes by I'm not having a conversation with somebody about why does God have all this evil? Why does all this stuff go on? Why doesn't God step in and take care of this particular situation every year? We look at all that and I think we can get a little bit of a clue here from, from Zechariah. In the first vision, we see the same colors, probably the same forces as in the final vision of the four chariots. In the first vision, these forces are out in the world. They are observing. They are wandering around the face of the earth. They are seeing what's going on. When they bring back the report, they are saying, the world is at rest even though God is not. The world is fine with how things are going. God is not fine with how things are going. But the world is. So they're observing. They're walking. They're seeing all these things, but they're not doing anything about it. But they are observing all this stuff that's coming, on, coming down upon the earth. In the final one, there's action. There is a difference between the first and the last vision in the timing. God has set a time to execute the judgment. And when that time comes, that judgment will come. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? The evil seed was sown. The servants came and, hey, you sowed good seed. What about all this evil stuff that's there? Don't try and pick them out. In the end, the angels will harvest and will separate the good from the bad. You'll endanger the harvest if you take them early. God is concerned with the overall harvest. We can get concerned with the individual acts of evil seed that we see. Evil seed here, evil seed here. Why don't you step in there and harvest this evil seed out? And in the parable of the wheat and the tares, he says, No, do not do that. I've got it set up. I've got to set up how we're going to take care of them. We're going to take care of them in the way that is best for the harvest that the most amount of people come into the kingdom of God. And we can lose sight of that. Now, I just wrote this down. This is just my own thought, kind of thinking about this thing. Maybe I'm thinking on it too long. <laughs> but I wonder if Satan feels he can bake God into harvesting too soon by stepping up the evil. I just wonder... Does Satan think, if I really step up the evil, will God take the bait and send the harvest before the time? Thereby messing up the harvest itself. Why do you do it? Well, Satan's stupid this way. But, but understand this, God is patient. God has set up the time. In the vision of Zechariah, the observers have gone out. God knows what's going on. He sees the things that are happening. But He did not empower them to do anything yet. But in the eighth and final vision... Here they come, same ones, through the mountains of judgment, through the bronze mountains, with chariots. And they are being dispatched against the evil. And he says, go out and take care of them. Go out and, and harvest these guys. The time will come. We look at things, we get impatient. We say, God, you ought to take care of this thing now. And God says, no, no. I'm not moved off of my timetable. I know how to set this up. 
There is nothing happening in this earth that surprises me. I knew how evil it was going to get. And in looking at the overall scheme of things, I knew how evil it was going to be. I knew the best time to send for the harvest. And I have put that in there. Now just trust me that I know the best time for this harvest. We just got to trust our God. I think Satan is out there trying to fan the flame and get people to think things about God that they shouldn't or get God to act before he said he would. Now I made this note. I just put a, a brief part of it in here. You can fill in the rest of this if you want to with as much as you want. The forces of evil often appear more visible. They depend on fear to increase their power and effectiveness. The forces of evil, you see the forces of evil around, they appear more visible than the forces of God. They, de- they depend on fear to increase their power and effectiveness. You remember when we were talking about the first vision? And I said, um, I actually had to come back to it in the second week. I said, you, I don't even know that what Zechariah is seeing is visible to everyone that's there. Because if you'll notice, in that vision, there's no one else around. He sees no other people. They may be in another dimension. They may be in another something or other. Um, but no one else is there. The forces of, of evil are very visible. They depend on that. They need to be seen because they need to instill fear. Without fear, they're powerless. How is it that Nebuchadnezzar instilled people to bow down to his idol? Through fear. How is it that the Antichrist gets people to take the mark of the beast? Through fear. That's what empowers them. God's not empowered that way. But that's what they are. He has to try and muster all the fear that he can to get even close to the power that God has waiting to be released. And he will not get close. He can muster all the fear that he wants to in people. And still, his power will not get close. I think one of the the best examples, I love using movies as as examples, simply because if uh, you ever go and you see the movie, you'll think about it. How many have ever seen the uh, movie Monsters, Inc.? I don't see those evil, horrible, uh, terrible... You know, I see mostly kid movies and stuff like that. Monsters, Inc. was a fun little movie. Uh, the, the basis of it was this. Uh, in, the, in the monsters world, in order to generate power, they would have these doors, and these doors would be opened up into little kids' rooms. And so the monsters would come out of the closet. You know, kids. every kid thinks that monsters are in the closet. So the monsters would come out of the closet. They would scare the kids and the kids would scream. They'd capture all the energy in that scream and they would generate uh, power that way. And so they, uh, but over time, this is where the movie picks up, kids aren't as afraid. And so the screams are kind of cutting down and so they're not generating as much power. And so a lot of things are going on. So cut to the end of the movie. What they find out at the end of the movie is, they stumbled upon it, that laughter generates more power than screams. And so the, instead of the, the people going into the rooms and scaring them, now they, uh, they bring them into where they are and they get them to laugh and they make them entertain. And as they laugh and, and they have fun, then great amount of power comes on in. And so that's the, the basis of that there. The laughter generated far more power than the screams ever could. The enemy tries to generate power through our fear. But the most amount of power he can generate through our fear does not even come close to the amount of power that God has sitting on the sidelines that he needs nothing to happen to unleash it. That's the losing battle that Satan fights. He is trying so hard to generate all the fear that he can. And still, He cannot get close to the power that God has. All the fear that will be generated in the tribulation period. And God comes down and swoops in and bang, it's all over. That's how useless it is. The forces of evil often appear more visible. But they depend on fear to increase their power and effectiveness. The forces of God are by nature stronger and more effective and need nothing more to accomplish what God sent them to do. There is nothing 
that the forces of God need that are standing in the wings waiting to be unleashed. There is nothing they need to accomplish what God sent them to do. They have everything they need. And God has them on the sidelines waiting. And when He says they're unleashed and they go and they accomplish what they need to do. Because of that, they are content to be behind the scenes and in the waiting for when His command comes. When they are unleashed, there will be nothing to stop or to hinder them. The forces of God don't need to be visible. They don't need people to see them. They don't need people to even believe in them. They have their power. The forces of evil don't. That's why they become a lot more visible. And God can just be content to have His forces poised, in position, and ready to go. In the final days, forces of evil will unleash upon the earth. The final days, we see the four horsemen that are dispatched. They will have peace through lies and deceit. They will have bloodshed through violence, war, and the disruption of peace. They will have financial and economic collapse resulting in food shortages and famine. And death in Hades will come up behind empowered to inflict death through all kinds of means. They will not be, be empowered today as they are in the tribulation. But these forces are for and they are of evil. These forces are around us. They're not, un, they're not unleashed the way they will be in the tribulation period, but they are around us. As the church, we should recognize these forces. And not be caught up in them. We should never go for the idea of peace through compromise or by any means necessary. But only through faith and honor of the principles of God. Through fear, the enemy can sometimes move people to obtain peace through compromise. But don't settle for that. Stay with faith and honor the principles of God. You look at the people in the Old Testament who stayed with us, Daniel, his buddies, Abraham, Israel at times, David. They didn't compromise. They stayed with what God said to do. And through faith and honor of those principles, they had power. No justification for violence, lawlessness, or disruption of peace. I see Christians today and they look at some of the violence that goes on and they try and come up with justification for it. Understand that is not of God there is no justification for it and there is no way that we should ever be behind it even if it's for a cause that we like or we shouldn't hate it just because it's for a cause that we dislike we should hate it because it is of the wrong source my God is not in that and that will not that will not occur remember in the days of Abraham when Abraham had conquered the five kings and he came and he brought the all the spoil that was there and the king said look just give me the people you keep all the spoil and Abraham said absolutely not everything that is yours is going back to you I will not take a bit of it because I will not have you say that you made Abraham rich my God will do that he wouldn't compromise he wouldn't give in to those principles there's no justification for that don't side with the world for any reason. Don't be entwined with this world's financial system, economic system. Rely on God and say no to being enamored by death and hell as some are in what they wear, listen to, and watch. I cannot help but think about the way the people wear death on their shirts, dress up in black makeup and black clothes and black fingernails and black everything. Just, I mean, it just... They don't look. They don't. They look human. It's eerie. Why do? You, why do you want to do that? And it's just death that is all over them. They wear things of death. They wear spikes, and and things that inflict pain. Why do you want to do do all those things? Because Satan wants them enamored with death. 
because this is the fourth rider. We should never be enamored with death. Death is not our, 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 on our side. It is an enemy. I'm not going to wear shirts that have crossbones or symbols of death on them. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to bring in movies that celebrate death. I'm not going to bring those things in. I've got to make sure I make a stand against the, these kind of things because I can get numb to these things. We don't want to do that. We've got to make a stand. The same way that God has powers, He commissions us to do His work and the enemy tries to mimic these. But as always, the enemy comes up short. He comes up very short in the area of power. The enemy will try and mimic the things that God does. He's going to try and mimic these horsemen that He sends out as judgment. But He will do it with an evil intent and it will have an evil result. And it will not bring the peace that God brings. Don't mistake visibility with power and ability to finish the job. Don't mistake visibility with power and the ability to finish the job. We may not be able to see these forces that Zechariah says are about on the earth. But don't underestimate their ability to get the job done. Because they will. And they will do it swiftly. Because the power of God compared to the power of evil is not even close. Not even a fair fight. It will be over in an instant because of how unbalanced the power is. Satan is very visible because that's the only way he can gain power. But don't, don't be moved by the visibility of the evil. Because what is, work, what is lurking in the wings, what is hidden in the trees, what is tied up in the winds of heaven, is greater than anything put against you. Have the confidence of Elisha, who stood in a city that was surrounded by the enemy and said, those that are with us are more than are with them. Father, we thank you that your power is so much greater than the enemy. That we do not have to fear him. He has great visibility. And he tries to put fear in us because of that visibility. Because of what we see. Because of what we feel around us. Father, we have learned not to be tied into that. Because it is not by our strength that we win but by your spirit. And we need to stay tapped into the golden oil that is fed to us to keep our lamps going. For our strength comes from things that they may not know. Give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.